The buyers, there's four main countries in the world that dominate the buying. China sits at the very top in terms of volume. Japan sits right up there in terms of quality, Korea as well. And last but not least is America. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. I thought for a show it would be really fun just to get an overview of global beef markets. And I brought on the renowned Simon Quilty from Australia. And he talked with me just about the basic beef markets. This is a global beef 101. So if you don't know anything about it, you're going to learn a few things. Let's give it a listen. All right, Simon, we are going to talk global cattle and beef industry. Could you give us, before we get into that, a short introduction on who you are, what you do, who you work with, and then we'll go from there. Sure, Miles, and thank you for having me today. Um, so my name is Simon Quilty. I'm a meat and livestock analyst. I've been 35 years in the meat and livestock industry. I started off as a lobbyist for the Victorian Farmers Federation when I left university. And I loved it, Miles. It was probably one of my favorite jobs. But you kind of reach a glass ceiling. And I went from there into meat trading, feeling I needed to re-educate myself. And so I booked myself into the school of Louis Dreyfus, which actually was a job, and took a pay cut. But, you know, for the next four years, I learned more about the meat industry and the livestock industry than you would in a lifetime. And then went from there to Conagra. And Conagra was, uh, at that point, the largest buyer of meat in Australia, as well as the largest meat processor. And then from there, after seven, eight years with them, I went into my own trading business it was that lasted for about 10 years. That was enjoyable, but lots of highs and lows. And, you know, eventually hit the headwinds of the global financial crisis and stepped away from that, but not completely. I moved into risk management and worked closely with a number of companies over the following five, six, seven years, of which we really got beef swaps going across North America with a company called Merrick's Capital. And after uh, six or so, seven years of doing that, in actual fact, it was probably COVID that really threw kind of a spanner in the works. I had been working closely with Global Agritrends and Brett Stewart and myself launched Global Agritrends Down Under. And I think the rest is history, Miles. The interesting thing, Simon, that I'll add is I read about you in like national newspapers and you you do have quite an influence down under with the beef industry and just the meat industry in general. Uh, well, thank you, Miles. I guess what I hope to bring is transparency to the market and all those years of trading has put me in good stead, not only in terms of understanding, but also my contacts and it's probably the contacts that matter the most globally to truly pull apart what the markets are doing. So Simon, let's get into the topic. Could you give us an overview 
of the global cattle industry? Who are the major players? What's going on? What are some current things that are happening globally that are affecting the markets? Who's the main buyers? How does it work out? Just for anybody, let's say somebody who's never heard of this before, what would you say to them to help them understand it better? Well, I guess the market is divided into four main supply countries around the world that dominate global beef trade. That is the US, Australia, Brazil, and India of all places. And of all those four, India is one of my favorites. And I trade out of India um, regularly. So we could talk about India all day long. In terms of where, so each of those countries provide or have a certain status in the market. Australia and the US sit at the very top in which grain-fed production is dominated out of America. Australia provides both grass and grain-fed. And then you get to Brazil and South America, and they provide very much the grass-fed base. And then you get to India, and that's buffalo meat. And that's, you might say, the, the bottom denominator in which a lot of, you might say, developing countries source meat out of India. So each player plays a really important role. Australia and the, the US very much providing, you might say, the elite end of the market. The buyers, there's four main countries in the world that dominate the buying. China sits at the very top in terms of volume. Japan in, it sits right up there in terms of quality, Korea as well. And last but not least is America. And so between those four supply countries and four buying countries. Now, the US sits interestingly as both a buyer and a seller, Miles. Because we eat so many hamburgers or why is it the cuts that we're bringing in? How, why is that? It is exactly that, that you've got, you know, you produce a lot of um, fat meat as in grain fed. So 50 CL is an enormous byproduct, you might say, of the overall market. And Australia and New Zealand in particular are a great provider of lean meat. And so you blend the two to make hamburgers. Normally it's a 77 chemical lean hamburger that you buy or ground beef at a supermarket in America. And so that entire fast food sector, pretty well the majority of it depends upon imported lean meat to a certain extent to produce burgers. There are also many, many other functions that we have in the market, but it, for simplicity's sake, that's pretty well aired. So India, let's go back to India real quick. How does that work with the dominant religion there? How is it they can slaughter those and where do they do it and how does it work? Yeah, no, great question. So India will produce anywhere up to about 1.6 to 1.7 million tonnes of buffalo Hindus, who are namely vegetarians, make up 85% of the 1.4 million billion people that live in India. So 85% of the population does not eat meat or beef. And to slaughter cows is against the law. So that's why buffalo is allowed to be slaughtered. So the herd size in India sits at about 310 million head, of which buffalo makes up about a third of that, 110 million buffaloes. 
So buffaloes are allowed to be slaughtered. It's the Muslim community that drives and dominates the market in terms of processing. And they supply what I would call second tier markets all over the world. So it's a crucial industry. It's undergoing some fundamental changes as we speak, Miles, in which rationalization is going on within India right now. Which would be those second tier countries that you're talking about? Would that be like Egypt or what countries would that be? The EU? Any in the EU? No, not many in the EU, but you're right. The Middle East, the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Myanmar, you name it. So a lot of Southeast Asian countries, but the Middle East is crucial. And then also a number of African countries plays an important role. Four years ago, at co- before COVID hit, India was once China's largest supplier of buffalo or beef, you might say. In 2016, something like 70% of all Indian buffalo went into China illegally through either Vietnam or Hong Kong. Then when COVID came, as well as lumpy skin disease throughout Asia, the Chinese shut down that trade. And today, almost no Indian buffalo goes into China. So that's created its own problems within India, uh, Miles, because selling into China through that illegal grey channel was easy. So you had a lot of what I would call very basic meatworks in India who simply did the bare minimum and sold huge amounts of buffalo into China via Vietnam or Hong Kong. Today, that does not occur. And the the bigger operators in India realised that they needed to upgrade. And if they didn't, they would go out of business. So to sell in a lot of other countries around the world, you have to lift your standard. And in India, they could lift their standard. And today, if you stand in one of those meatworks, you would look at it, Miles, and say, where am I in Australia, America, New Zealand? You could tell no difference because of the quality and the technology in that. So, Miles, it truly is a unique industry. Unfortunately, though, a lot of those small operators that sold to China are, you might say, either gone out of business or going out of business. And so you've got this probably somewhere around 10 to 15 meatworks that are unviable and, as a result, are being pushed out of the market. Australia, how does that fit into the picture as far as what politics go behind their beef trade and who are their main customers right now? I'm guessing the U.S. would be the biggest. Yeah, it's often a three-way tussle between um, Japan, China, career in the US. We've got a very interesting scenario right now, Miles, where the freezers in Asia are full. So in Japan on beef, record amounts of beef are in cold stores as we speak. It actually peaked last September, but they are still well above average. And in actual fact, if you accumulate the last 10 months of a product in Japan, it's unprecedented. In China, the freezers are full as well. In actual fact, 
2021 was seen as an average year. Well, the latest beef index for imported beef in, in China, it's sitting at three to three and a half times more than what it was back in 2021. So Korea is the last one, and it too has not only got a larger number of product in freezers, beef, but also its cattle inventory is now 25% higher than what it was back in 2016. And they're culling, they're doing a, a self-imposed cull to reduce the Hanwu numbers within Korea because they're too high. So Asia is bursting at the seams. And they're our three biggest markets. And for America, they're your three biggest markets as well. Then we have America, which you know has just been through and is still going through a very high liquidation process in terms of its own cattle supply. And to me, Miles, all eyes are on America for when the rain comes and how that will just you know, supercharge the rebuild within America. So the impact of that, Miles, is two. One, it increases demand for imported in America, but two, it takes beef away from Japan, Korea, and China, which helps Australia fill those voids in those other markets. So in actual fact, the US today is the most important market because there's so much opportunity that it will create internally as well as externally. You were mentioning earlier technologies in India. What are some of the main technologies you're seeing this industry adapt and how is it changing things? Is it automation in plants or are they using cameras in their production that helps? What What is it that they're using? I think automation, I mean, let's be honest, in India, you know, it's hard to often find a forklift on a, um, on a meat plant when you've got 20 or 30 people willing to um, do the same job at, at a cheaper rate. So the technology, though, both, you know, within India, but around the world, it seems that robotics is truly playing a huge role. And we see that in the storage facilities. I mean, today, storage facilities, you know, you can pinpoint one carton out of 20,000 in a storage and pull that carton thanks to the automation that they can do. So the ability to stack, also just particularly in the Western world, loading of pallets today is often completely automated. So therefore, you tend to have less problems with health and safety concerns and all the other things that go with it. I think also that AI is playing a role in many places in terms of looking at where productivity can be gained the most within meatworks. Miles, unfortunately, though, in the beef sector, I don't think we're ever going to get away in the boning room from having people there. The difficulties, as you know, in terms of a carcass and the numerous ways that it can be broken up really adds levels of complexity that I think today still poses huge challenges. That might be like 50 years down the road type hardcore AI that would be able to do that. I've seen plenty. And that's the same thing. They're all different. And they're like you say, there's a bunch of ways to cut it up. Something that I was thinking about while you were talking, I'm going to 
ask a hard one here. Some of the things on the horizon, we see what's going on in the EU right now with their laws that they're passing. How do you see that impacting with their guard against sustainability and do you think they're going to change that ever in the future? For example, what's going on in Belgium? How do you think, or do you think animal activism has gone too far? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, it probably has, but it's a very broad question that sits right in the heart of a number of areas. So let's talk about ESG. So, that's where you've got environmental, social governance. And today, you cannot get a loan from certain lending institutions unless you conform with ESG. I'll give you an example. Last week, I was at a winery here down the road. As we bought our dozen bottles of wine, which might keep me going for a day or so, Miles, um, on the packaging, it said, you know, carbon neutral wine. And as we're packing up the wine and the lady's helping behind the counter, she said to me, Simon, I said, what, are you getting a premium because you've got carbon neutral wine? And she said, no, we're not. And I said, so what is the purpose of being carbon neutral? Does that mean you can get a bank loan? And she said, exactly. Without that, we cannot get a bank loan. Now, possibly they could, but it would be at a much higher interest rate, Miles. So I say that is that animal welfare truly fits under that ESG requirement. But what happens is with extremists who are pushing, you might say, the dial, they are, you might say, I guess, influencing socially the thoughts of governments, other people, corporations. And so even though none of us agree with it, I think that those activities are going to continue. It's difficult as an industry to stop it because they get the media attention they want and it eventually corporations and governments are responding to this, Miles. So not to sound negative, but I think it's a real, it's, it's as a realist, I think we're going to have to be putting up with these extremists for a good while, yeah. I agree with you. I don't think it's anything that's going to go away. And, you know, I agree you want to watch out for the environment. You want to treat animals with respect, but when you take it to extremes and then you try to impose that on everybody and then you try to, pull that lever with money, you know, I mean, it limits people to what they can and can't do. So I'm going to ask you a soft one now to wrap it up. This is going to be my last question. What is your favorite breed of cattle? Which one do you like the most that you see and you just love it every time? Wagyu is such a topical um, discussion in Australia. I've been giving a lot of talks to the Angus Society of, of recent times. But I'll be honest, I did a project when I was about 10 years of age on belted Galloways. They are an unusual looking animal. They have self-marbling and they tend to be like the goats 
of the highlands of, of Scotland. So if I was to pick a favorite breed, it's a belted Galloway. Belted Galloway. I'll think of you every time I see those now. Thank you. Well, Simon, thanks for coming on. If anybody was ever interested to learn more and, and to find out more, where could they find you and your work? Uh, at Global Agritrends. So, yes, just look up globalagritrendsonline.com and um, we'll f- find Brett and my contact details. And, yes, talk about the meat and livestock sector until the cows come home. Man, I hope you learned something from that. I love listening to Simon. He is an expert. When you really know what you're talking about, you can engage anybody, I believe. So thanks to Simon for coming on. We are going to end this one with another manly mystery sound. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.